Well, see if you can identify the time that I'm describing. See if this sounds familiar to you. A time of deep divide in the United States. The president's cabinet is shattered by infighting and intrigue. In fact, it's so bad, the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Treasury don't just dislike each other. They actually hate each other. This time that I'm describing is marked by a hyper-partisan news media that mercilessly attacks the administration. It traffics in slander and in conspiracy and vicious attacks. Leaders of both political parties are being unmasked as immoral. And both sides of the fracas accuse the other of being completely and totally un-American. In fact, many come to the conclusion that the republic will not survive. What year did I just describe? You might think that that's 2022 or 1861. No, I'm talking about the year 1796. Back in the glory days of George Washington when everybody just loved each other and got along so well. If you read a history of the late 1790s, you will find that very quickly our young republic descended into partisan infighting. You think the newspapers and the, the, uh, the news media is bad today? It was really, really bad back then. The young country is just decades old, and the young United States is stewing in a seething cauldron of political infighting. Now, looking to the scene with profound concern, George Washington, the father of the nation, he realizes he's not going to run for a third term. He's going to pass from the scenes of power. He's going to hand power back to the people, go back to his farm like Cincinnatus. And he's going to give one final gift to his beloved nation. And that final gift will be his farewell address. If you've never read Washington's farewell address, I would commend it to you. It is an incredible document. Actually, George Washington did not write it. It was mostly written by Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. But what does George Washington say in his final words to the nation? Essentially, he calls the nation to unity. He calls the nation to focus not just on individual interests, but on the, the good of the nation. He warns the nation against sort of being caught up in the, in the desires of each individual section and to come together as a nation. It is, an, it is a beautiful call to national unity. We take George Washington's farewell, farewell address and we take those words seriously. For one thing, we hold George Washington in high regard, or most, most people do. Uh, hold him in high regard, and we tend to take the final words of great leaders with great weight. We say, okay, the final things that George Washington would say to the country, it's got to be important. We better read it. We better heed it. In fact, there's a tradition that lasts to this day that every year on George Washington's birthday, a senator will stand up in the well of the Senate and will be assigned the task of reading it because the truths it conveys are so timeless and necessary even for today. I think we would agree if you just think about the context when it was given and where we are today as a nation. Well, as we come to Luke 22, looking at verses 21 to 38 today, we're coming to a farewell address from one who is infinitely greater than George Washington. We're getting the farewell address, if you will, from Jesus. At this point in the Passion Week, Jesus has celebrated Passover with his disciples. He, he's come in, you know, the triumphal entry earlier in the week. He's had the confrontation with the religious leaders. The conspiracy against him has kicked into high gear. And he celebrates one final Passover with his disciples. And we spent significant time on that last week and thinking about the Passover and the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper. Once the dinner is over, Judas Iscariot leaves, and Jesus is addressing his 11 apostles. 
He knows what's going to happen in just a few short hours. There's indication over and over again that he's totally in control of what is about to happen. He knows exactly what is about to happen. And he knows that the next three days are going to put these guys through the ringer. He knows that after the cross, he's going to rise again from the dead. He's going to spend some time with the disciples and then ascend to heaven. And in a sense, they are going to be tasked with the mission of telling the world about what he has done. And you and I occupy that same space between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so what Jesus says to the 11 apostles, well, it's got unique, special application to them in that that dark night where he would be arrested and he would go to the cross the next morning. It's got particularly potent application to you and me today. So let's just read through the text, and then we're going to dive in and just get the, the meat of what Jesus is giving us in this farewell address. In fact, what he gives us are warnings. He gives us four warnings, and each warning is married to a promise. He doesn't just say, don't do this, but he's, don't do this, and here's my promise to get you through. So follow along, beginning in Luke 22, verse 21. Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Just a little pause. Other gospel writers then tell us that at this point, Judas leaves the upper room to go get the chief priests and and all of that to kick the conspiracy into, into action. And there arose also a strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For, For whether is greater, which is greater? He that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth? Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, and this is an all y'all, all eleven apostles, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, specifically for you, Peter, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, and you've turned back, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt deny, thrice deny that thou knowest me. He said unto them, when I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. And he said unto them, But now, he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise a scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. Quote from Isaiah 53. For the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he says, and he said unto them, It is enough. So coming to this farewell address, the next scene we'll have Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane. We get an expanded version of this in John uh, 13 to 17, where there's a lot more that Jesus said as he walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. But in this farewell address, he gives us four warnings. Four warnings. Listen, if Jesus gives us a warning, we better heed them. These are not just like 
The warnings that are on the hair dryer that are like, don't use this in the bathtub, like, well, who would do that? These are warnings that are really relevant that we desperately need to heed. The dangers that he warns us against are timeless and urgent and incredibly relevant. So what's the first warning he gives us? The first warning, he begins talking about Judas. Here's the first warning for us. Don't be betrayed by betrayal. So he says in verses 21 to 23, there's the hand of the betrayer. We know who that is from earlier in Luke 22. It's Judas Iscariot. He's going to sell Jesus out. And Jesus announces, the the hand of the betrayer is with me on the table. to say he's enjoying the closest kind of table fellowship possible. This heightens the betrayal. This, This signals that this betrayal doesn't just come from someone out on the periphery, but from the very inner circle. There's tremendous pain that is conveyed in verse 21. The hand of him that betrayeth is with me on the table. Psalm 41 talks about the the one who went with me to to, to the temple and to to celebrate the holy day together. That's the one who's betrayed. You ever been betrayed before? The closer the individual is to you, the deeper and more painful the betrayal. And here Jesus is betrayed by someone that he poured his life into. He's betrayed by someone who he's just celebrated the Passover with. Luke puts this after the meal, suggesting that Judas Iscariot took communion. And by the way, it did not save his soul. He came falsely to the table. This betrayal does not come from the periphery. No, it comes from the very center. Nothing in life is as painful as betrayal. I know there's sitting in this room a range of experiences and hurts that that you have gone through been betrayed by by an unfaithful spouse. You've been betrayed by a church. Someone's betrayed a confidence, or you've had a co-worker who would say one thing to your face and another thing behind your back. And you're like, nobody really understands what it's like to have this knife in my soul. And I'm here to say to you, there is one who knows far better than you what it is to be betrayed. There's one who sits on the right hand of the Father who has been touched with all the kinds of feelings of infirmities that we have been touched with, who just come boldly to me. Yes, the betrayal is painful, but for the Christian, that kind of betrayal should throw you into the arms of Jesus Christ. When you go through stuff like that, what are you looking for? You're looking for someone like, is there anyone who gets what I'm going through right now? Listen, Jesus gets what you're going through. There's tremendous pain in that. But verse 22 reminds us that, that, that it's purposeful. He says, truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. Like this, is, this has been determined and ordained by God. It is part of his eternal plan to redeem mankind, that he would be betrayed by Judas. We spent some time on that thought a few weeks ago, if you want to go back and review that from the first 13 verses of, of Luke 22. This is not a mistake. Jesus is not just sort of being carried along by the waves, sort of sweeping him along on the, the tide of history. No, it's been determined by God, and he's fully in control. Now, the question comes up, the the age-old debate about divine sovereignty and human freedom. Well, what Judas did was ordained by God. Well, then Judas couldn't help it. And Judas is, you know, how can God judge him? Well, notice the second part of the verse. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. God ordains it, yes. But Judas is an active agent in the betrayal. Judas is moved by his own greedy and fickle heart to hand the Son of God over to his killers. Every betrayal, even the ones that you and I go through, do fit into God's plan. No, God does not condone them. God does not actively cause people to sin. But God does have a purpose. We we read Romans 8, and we know that all things work 
together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Even betrayal, even sins. We get the, the testimony of Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God, what? God meant it for good. Now, maybe you're here today and you're a little bit skeptical of Christianity. You're like, well, I'm just kind of come to church because I know it's a good thing to do. But in my heart of hearts, I've got real questions. I've got real questions because... I've seen enough of the inner workings of the church to know the church is just chock full of hypocrites. Or people who claim to believe in God do some really horrible things in the name of God. So I've seen Christians who claim to be Christians one day and the next day they reject the faith. And it makes me call into question the entire thing. A guy like Judas who walks with Jesus and then is like, boom, I'm out. How can I believe that this is true when there's so many people deconstructing and rejecting the faith, people who are hypocritical, who say one thing one day and then the next day walk out the door of the church? Well, I would just push back a little bit on your claim. Say, I'm going to reject Christianity because of the hypocrisy. My question is this, what is your standard? See, to come along and say, I'm going to reject Christianity because of hypocrisy is assuming that there is some standard of, like, Christians should be this way. Right? So, in, in other words... When we reject Christianity because people are hypocritical, we're actually being assuming the standard that is taught in the Bible. So yes, I'll be the first to say there are plenty of people who claim to be Christians who are total hypocrites. Plenty of people who profess to know Jesus, but in their works they deny him. But that does not make Jesus false. Let every man, uh, let God be true and every man a liar. Now verse 23, look back to the text with me. And they, all the disciples, began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Listen, none of the disciples were like, oh, yeah, it's Judas. We sort of had our eye on him all along. We knew he was up to shady business, slipping out, talking to the chief priests. Nobody had a clue. Like, this was a surprise to all of them. This had the potential to pull the rug of faith out from under the feet of all the other apostles. It's interesting that when it came up, they didn't suspect Judas. They all suspected themselves. Which I think is actually healthy for us to say, okay, rather than me point fingers at other people to say, okay, where's my heart? If I stand, take heed lest I fall. Few things are as jarring as Christian treason. I've I've got a book that's an excellent book. Actually, a couple of them that are endorsed by different people on the back. And I was comparing an early edition to a later edition. And the number of leaders who endorsed the book the first time around, whose names had to be removed the second time around, because they left the faith, was staggering. Big names, celebrity pastors, no longer Christians, or unfaithful to their wife. It can really shake your faith. If you're looking to a human leader who then rejects Jesus, you can be like, hey, what's going on here with this? When you find out that a beloved pastor was actually a predator, or a Christian leader was an embezzler, or that an evangelist is now an atheist, it can really, really rattle your faith. And if your faith is in that place where it's really being rattled right now, here's what I would say. Jesus actually tells us right here, if there was a betrayer in the midst of the 11, it should not surprise us that there are going to be traitors throughout the history of the church. He told us to expect this, not to be surprised by it. It actually confirms the truth of what Jesus is saying. I think it warns us against looking to human leaders to ground our faith. I've seen people who have been, oh, pastor so-and-so in all these books, and then he goes off the rails, and they're like, I can't be a Christian anymore. Suggest to me that you are trusting pastor so-and-so than putting your trust in a perfect Jesus. Jesus is warning us over the centuries here is don't be betrayed by betrayal. It is going to happen. It's going to be painful. It's going to be perplexing. 
But Jesus is faithful, even when Judas is not. When it happens, it will sadden you, but it should not shock you. It should grieve you, but not ruin you. But let's move on to a a second warning. First warning, don't be betrayed by betrayal. Second warning here is don't grasp after after greatness. Luke gives us an account here that uh, is only included in in his gospel. We don't get this in Matthew or in Mark or John. Uh, By the way, we get this discussion a couple of times in other places, which tells us the disciples were always talking about who's going to be the greatest. But here they are right after Jesus has served the Last Supper. I would place this probably around the time where he has washed the disciples' feet. And where do they go again? Well, who's the greatest? This is a, they didn't get past this for a while. So verse 24, there arose also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. The discussion goes from who's the worst disciple, the worst scoundrel who's going to betray Jesus to being like, but who's going to be the best? Uh, just the lack of self-awareness here is staggering, isn't it? So there arose a strife. Um, the, the word there is kind of an interesting one. Um, the idea is the word victory and the word love. People who always love to be right. You ever know someone like that? People who always love to be right, what do they always do? Argue all the time, right? These are the people who are like on Thanksgiving Day spent hours and hours on Twitter just like arguing about some article or something. That's what the disciples, this love of victory, this love of being right, this strife as to who's going to be thought of as the greatest. Who are other people going to look at and be like, oh, that's, yeah, he's the greatest disciple, or he's the most popular, or he's the most well-liked, or his books are on the top of the Barnes & Noble bestseller list. Who's going to be popular? Whose brand is going to be the most famous? Disputes flow out of pride. Only by pride cometh contention. Where there's smoke, there is fire. Where there is squabbling, there's pride. Understand. God is not merely concerned with our behavior, but with our motives. It's not just that they were squabbling, but he's concerned about the heart that leads to that. Not just that the disciples are sort of elbowing each other for who's going to be the most prominent, but the very fact that we have hearts that love to be most prominent. The very fact we get addicted to likes and shares and views and what people think of us. It's not just that that behavior is bad. You, you, you can issue all forms of sort of public, I want people to like me, but still have a heart that covets people's approval. Colossians 3 says covetousness, whether it's for stuff or for status, is idolatry. If you're here today and you think, well, I'm, I'm a good person because I don't steal or lie or cheat, understand that God's standard is not simply about our behavior, but it's about our hearts. And we have the same hearts as the disciples. It's super easy to be like, man, what a bunch of losers. Here they are griping. I wouldn't have done. No, our hearts do the same thing. The reason why it bothers us so much when someone else does this is in our hearts that we kind of wish it was us. We want influence. We want recognition. We want our preferences to be met. We want our needs to be catered to. And that, that desire for be prominent to be first is the essence of sin. And it's why Jesus had to come and die for us. Now, Jesus, notice what he says in verse 25. He says, the kings of the Gentiles, okay, of the nations of the pagans. He's thinking of Nero and of Herod. And you do a little bit of reading in ancient history, and those guys were just crazy, ambitious, to the point of murdering their own family members. Like, their their families were messed up because of greed, and I want to be in charge, and so I'm going to knock them off, and and all these things. He says, the kings of the Gentiles, they exercise lordship. They, They dominate and rule with an iron fist. 
And those who exercise authority are called benefactors. Some irony there, benefactor, someone who does something that is good. The, the, the rulers in the ancient world were not constitutional monarchs like the, the king of Great Britain or presidents who are limited by checks and balances. They ruled with absolute authority, and they could kill anyone that they wanted to. They'd be absolute thugs and then get this title, benefactors. I rule for the good of the people. The, you think about the leader of North Korea, the dear leader kind of idea, even though he's a complete thug. He says, that's what the rulers of the world do. They're seeking after that prominence. They're jockeying for power. But verse 26 but ye shall not be so. This is emphatic. You, not like that. Not like the world. So forget everything you know from climbing the corporate ladder. Forget everything you know about politicians gaining power. The way in the kingdom of God is the opposite. The way up is down. The way to glory is through suffering. Promotion is found in demotion. Leadership through service. He that is greatest among you, let him be as the youngest. So the youngest person in the ancient world would be regarded as not, we have this thing with this cult of youth where, oh, young. In the ancient world, it was the older people who had status and influence. The youngest, nobody cared what you thought. It says, okay, if you want to be the person who has the influence, be willing to be treated like the water boy. Be like the bat boy, not like the general manager. And he that is chief is the one who does serve. Then he asks a rhetorical question. Who's greater, the one who is sitting at dinner or the one who serves? Okay, who's more important? The rich businessman, businessman who goes to Dolphins, you know, who's cutting a big deal over a big steak, or the person who is working for just above minimum wage serving them? So obviously the, the businessman, he's the more important. That's the way of the world. Jesus says, look at me, I'm among you as the one who serves. Now this is powerful, a powerful argument. The disciples rightly recognize Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He's the Son of Man. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, here I am as the Lord and as the Master, and here I am kneeling down washing your feet. They all acknowledge implicitly Jesus is the greatest, and then here he is serving. He's arguing not from sort of some form of logic or some outside authority. He's just arguing from his own example. They look at my example, I serve, I humble myself, I become obedient, going even to the death of the cross. True leadership, true influence is found through serving, meeting the needs of those around you and under you. You can read Philippians 2 this afternoon to see what this looked like for Jesus. The hero is not the general who sits in the air-conditioned Pentagon, but is the private who lays down his life for his comrades. The great Christian is not the one who holds title and office and has best-selling, novel, or best-selling books, but the one who is willing to serve without recognition. Billy Graham was one time asked, who is the greatest Christian in the world today? And his answer was, first off, I don't know. Second off, we wouldn't know who that person is. Because it's probably someone we've never heard of who no one recognizes who is quietly serving Jesus without recognition, without reward. Christ-likeness, beloved, means humble service. It means doing the dishes for your wife. It means helping with the housework during the holidays. It means cooking dinner for the family. It means serving in the nursery. It means visiting widows and texting people who are lonely. It means saying, I'm going to come early and set up tables at church. It means I'm going to teach that teenager how to change the oil. It means saying, I'm going to hold a baby for that young mom. It means meeting needs without recognition. Christ-likeness means humble service. And you can expand that list a thousand different ways. 
So what Jesus is saying in this argument is don't grasp after greatness. He says, you need to serve now. Be focused right now, not on greatness. But notice how he sort of switches gears in verse 28. You're they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom. He says, you guys are worried about status and authority now? Just focus on serving now because the status and authority is going to come then. In the kingdom, we pray thy kingdom come. Jesus will one day return and establish his kingdom on this earth. And those who have served humbly now will be rewarded then with authority and with status and with glory. In this upside-down kingdom, glory comes after serving. Comes after suffering. Honor comes after humility. The greatness that the disciples long for. So you guys long for greatness. The greatness is going to be attained not in jockeying for position, but enjoying my grace. Okay, notice the word there in verse 29. I appoint unto you a kingdom. It's the verb form of the noun that is covenant, the word covenant. I have covenanted to you. I have promised to you a kingdom. Not that we all get our own little kingdoms and, you know, we're going to rule different planets. Not that idea. But we will share in the rule of Jesus over a renovated world. I promise this to you. You're not going to have it all now. You're going to have it then. And guess what? We don't get that by throwing our elbows around, by climbing up the ladder, by trying to knock other people off. We get that by his grace. So I think what Jesus is arguing is your jockeying for position is absolutely absurd. Why? Because you already have it. You already have the promise of a kingdom and a promise of reward, and it's not going to be coming by tripping other people up to try to get ahead. It's come through grace. He says, in the kingdom you'll eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. That's a common picture of this banquet that we talked about last week. And he says, you'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, judging in the sense of ruling, ruling over Israel back in their land and over the nations and over this world. There's going to be all of the status and authority that we will have. Now, Paul makes a similar argument in 1 Corinthians. Opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, the issue that he is dealing with is squabbling and bickering in the church. Like I said, squabbling and bickering flow out of pride. Just listen to the argument that he makes. He comes to the conclusion of saying, guys, it's absurd and crazy to try to jockey for position and line up behind different leaders and be like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. He says, therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ and Christ is God's. And then he says a few verses later, for who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as, that, as if thou hadst not received it? He's saying it's all of grace. It's all of grace. If someone has more talent and influence than you right now, it's because of God's grace. And in the world to come, we're not going to be worried about position and status and title. It's yours. Now, the question is, do you really believe that promise? You see, every time that we go running after power and status and authority and self-promotion and brand building and getting jealous at someone else's recognition or success, we are implicitly saying, I don't really believe the promise that the reward is for the future. Just in case, I need to hedge my bets and make sure I get in some of that glory now. You see, faith in God's future promises will drive out this pride and the seeking after status. Which means we need to go back to the gospel again and again and be like, look at God's promises, stare at God's promises, soak in God's promises. Because pride can't exist in the same place where we're receiving this kingdom by grace. 
Grace belongs not to the grasping fingers of the ambitious, but to the open hand of the needy beggar. We're grasping. No, 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 I've got nothing. I'm a sinner. I've got nothing to offer God, and I come to Jesus as someone who is blind and naked and empty and needing his mercy and his grace. That's the one who gets grace. And by the way, how do you know that you've received grace? Is you'll be reminded from time to time that that is who you really are. So Jesus warns the disciples. He warns us. Don't grasp after greatness. You, you see how relevant this warning is. Church history is replete of, with, with these individuals who try to dominate and have power. And you look at the Middle Ages and kings and popes going back and forth at each other's throats. If only this had been heated. If only this is heated in, in churches like ours. How much more unity would we enjoy? We need to move on to a third warning. Third warning Jesus gives here is don't stop believing. Jesus moves on from the glory of the future kingdom back to the gritty reality of the present. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. So notice that the prayer here is, Peter, you're going to go through the ringer. And this is speaking specifically of that very night that he's going to deny Jesus three times. His faith is going to be put to the ultimate test. It's going to be stretched to the near breaking point. But Jesus says, Peter, I am praying for you that your faith does not fail. Listen, Peter's courage definitely failed. But his faith didn't. Even though he was afraid to give testimony that he knew Jesus, he still believed in Jesus. Now, we, we see here kind of the inner working, sort of the, the, uh, the kitchen, if you will. Right? You go to a nice restaurant. They bring out this beautiful plate. We get to enjoy the meal. Here we kind of go back into the kitchen. How is it that God sustains our faith and keeps us from just rejecting him completely and going down the path of Judas? It's through Jesus praying for us that our faith fail not. I said earlier that each of these, uh, each of these warnings has a promise kind of baked into it. With the betrayal, there's this promise that Jesus knows the future and he's controlling what's happening. With the, 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 the warning about grasping after greatness, there's this promise, ah, oh, you got the kingdom. Here we have the promise that Jesus prays for us. But before that, notice back in verse, tw- verse 31, Simon, Simon, okay, the name is repeated, conveying deep, deep emotion. Some people have noted the fact this is Peter's pre-conversion name. Remember, Peter means rock, and Peter would not really be rock that night. He would sort of just crumble like a cookie when the pressure came. So he's maybe not using like, hey, rock, you know, strong guy. He's using his name that conveys his weakness. There might be something to that. Behold, draw your attention. Focus on this fact, not on who's going to be greatest. Focus on the need of right now. Satan has desired to have you. The you you there is plural. He's desired all of the disciples, that he may sift you as wheat. Satan wants to take you and sort of pick you apart is the idea. But I have prayed for thee. That is a singular. See, Peter's the leader of the group. Okay, they're all apostles. They have equal authority. But Peter's kind of a first among equals. He's sort of the quarterback of the team, the player coach. And if he goes down, the rest of them might as well. So Jesus is saying, sort of as the leader, I'm praying for you in a unique and special way. I believe he prayed for the others as well. But he's singling Peter out. Satan has desired. Satan wants you. Well, the word's even stronger than that. that it's the idea that Satan has demanded permission. Like, that's kind of freaky that Satan's like, I demand permission to go after Sam Sinclair. 
But that's also really awesomely comforting. Satan is a roaring lion, but he's a roaring lion who is in a cage. He's a roaring lion who's got a leash, and holding the leash and depending how, giving the amount of leash that he has is God Almighty. You can read Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. Satan wanted to go after Job. And what did he have to do? He had to go before God's throne and say, have you considered Job and there's no one like him and all these things. And God has to give the green light to Satan before he goes after Job. Satan cannot touch us without our father's permission. And if our father allows him to have permission, that means our father has a good purpose. Sifting wheat, pretty rough for the wheat. The wheat gets beaten and thrown in the air. But you know what the result of sifting is? All of the chaff and all of the the stem gets blown away and you get pure wheat. In the very exact same trial that you are going through, Satan might have a plan of, I'm going to try to wreck your faith. And in the exact same trial, God Almighty has a good and gracious purpose to say, I'm going to strengthen your faith. Think about, well, don't stop believing. Take comfort in the fact that Jesus guards us. Satan might attack But he cannot overwhelm. He cannot take your salvation. He cannot destroy your soul or take away what is promised to you so long as you have a mighty Savior protecting you. How does Jesus sustain our faith? Well, he prays for us. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. He's saying before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. You realize that is going on right now. Jesus is actively and eternally praying for every one of his children that your faith fail not. Praying to keep your soul saved. We believe in eternal security. But eternal security is not a magic wand that God sort of sprinkles some some pixie dust on you like, there you go, you're good to go. You know how God keeps us saved? The work of the Spirit in our hearts and the work of his Son actively praying for us. By the way, Jesus' prayers get answered. Jesus' prayers get answered. When he prays that our faith fail not, he's going to see to it that our faith fail not. Now, let me just think, let's just think for a second what that means. Because you're like, I know the rest of the story. Like, Peter really messed up. A little girl comes and is like, hey, do you know Jesus? And he's like, no, 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 denies him three times in a row. That doesn't look like faith surviving to me. That does not look like faith thriving to me. This word fail is, it means this, to be no longer in existence. All right, so think of it like a fire. The the flames might be doused a little bit. They may flicker down a little bit, but the coals of Peter's faith were still hot. The fire could be revived with some blowing upon it. The flame of his courage, to change the metaphor a little bit, flickered, but the coals of faith were never extinguished. He would be knocked down, but he would not be knocked out. And we see there's this amazing point. Look in verse 61. When When Peter finally denies Jesus three times, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he had said to him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And notice, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Before, Peter, before the night was over, Peter's journey to restoration began. At certain points of the night, Peter and Judas might have looked identical. Both are not with Jesus both are sort of, sort of denying association with Jesus. But the trajectory was very different. Judas continued downward. Peter made a U-turn and went back. The, the test of saving faith is not, do you never sin? No, the test of saving faith is, does it trust in Jesus? And does it keep trusting in Jesus? Jesus did not pray for Peter to be spared from hardship. Jesus did not pray for Peter to be spared from Satan's attack, nor does he 
pray so, so for us. He prays that our faith would not fail. When we sin, what does he do? He intercedes, 1 John 2, 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He pleads for us before the Father, not on the basis of our intentions. Praise God for that. He doesn't go to God and be like, hey, Sam really is meaning well here. He just kind of messed up again. Sorry about that. He goes and says, yeah, Sam really messed up. He sinned. That sin is real. But I'm the propitiation who satisfied your wrath against that sin, and on that basis pleads for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8.34 reminds us of the same reality. That he's our defense attorney. He's also the judge. He's also the prosecutor. He's the one who holds all the cards in defending us. And listen, if he died for us, he's not going to say, well, I died for that saint knowing that he would sin in all these ways, but I'm going to chunk him out. Oh, no, no, no. He keeps us secure based on his finished work on the cross. Now, continuing on here, because I, just, I love this. I know we're slowing down a little bit, but there's so much here. The end of verse 32, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. We think converted, oh, Peter wasn't saved. Okay, the idea here is just when you're turned around. I think Peter was a saved individual at this point. Uh, you can't have faith fail that you did not actually have. Uh, Peter's saved, but when you, when, you, when you get back on track, strengthen your brethren. This is put in a different way in, in, in John's gospel. After the resurrection, Jesus meets Peter on the, sea, uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He says, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Feed my sheep. And he says it to him three times. Three times he denied him. Three times he reaffirms his love. He's saying, you're going to be restored and when you're restored, strengthen your brothers. When you're restored, feed my sheep. And you read the book of Acts and you see Peter standing as a pillar in the early church. You see Peter preaching with fire on Pentecost. You see Peter being the one who is putting the, the spine into the early church as they undergo suffering. After failure, there can often be fruitfulness. We have a God of mercy and grace who restores us. You see, the mark of true faith is not that it is perfect, but that it is persistent. And Jesus has this unique mission for Peter. Out of his failure came great fruit. You see, brash Simon, Simon who would be like, oh, I'll never fail. I don't struggle as other people do, would become humble Peter. This same man, years later, would write a letter to Christians scattered all over Cappadocia and Bithynia who are undergoing persecution. And he would use language like this, dearly beloved Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. You can hardly imagine the words dearly beloved being in the mouth of Simon in the Gospels. There's something about falling flat on your face that makes you much more understanding and gentle towards other people who fall flat on their face. Whenever I would, whenever I would fly and before we had a baby and there would be a screaming baby on the airplane, I'd be like, those parents need to get their kid under control. Until it was me with the screaming baby on the airplane and you're like, oh, this is way harder than I thought. In the same way, Peter would develop this tremendous compassion. We see in 1 Peter, it's really ironic that in 1 Peter 3.15, he would talk about don't fear their fear, but be ready always to give an answer. That's precisely the area where he failed, where later on he can speak with authority because he knows what it is to fall flat on your face. Now, this is, none of this is to say, yeah, just revel in your failure. God will use you. But this is to say that, yeah, failure is failure and it's sin and we should avoid it. But God can still use it. It's not game over just because you're down at halftime. God can use even your worst failures for his glory. 
For Peter, there would be usefulness after this. There would be opportunity after defeat. There would be sunrise after midnight. There would be Easter after Good Friday. So he says, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen the, the, the other believers. Listen, we all have a story, all of us. All of us have been through things that maybe we don't tell other people about because it kind of makes us look bad. Don't be afraid to tell that story to be a blessing to other people. Don't be afraid to open up about how God gave you restoring grace after adultery or divorce, or you've seen his power to conquer addiction, or you have trusted his promises through depression and clung to his hope through grief. Don't keep those stories to yourself. Use them to strengthen your brothers. Now, verse 34. I tell you, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt deny that thou knowest me three times. Right before that, Peter's like, I'd never do that. Jesus is warning him against spiritual pride. The storm clouds of spiritual failure billow upward in the unstable atmosphere of pride. When we think, that would never happen to me, when we think, I'm different than other people, or my case is exceptional, or I'm beyond the reach of temptation, I don't need the guardrails that other people need, those are the moments we're most vulnerable. The enemy of our souls does not need to convince us that sin is good. We can know that sin is evil. He does not need to convince us that sin is good. He just needs to convince us that we are good. You're good enough. You don't need to take guard. So Jesus warns us. Here's my point. The warning Jesus gives to us in between the first coming and the second coming, between that, 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 that evening where he would be betrayed and his resurrection, don't stop believing. Keep trusting. Take advantage of those, those means that God has given to us to strengthen our faith, like gathering with believers and praying and partaking of the Lord's Supper and confessing sin and inviting other people to speak into your life. Don't stop believing. But finally, don't expect it to be easy. Verses 35 to 38 are unique to Luke's gospel. And he alludes to the early missionary missions trips that the disciples took, where Jesus sent them out without supplies and was like, go and enjoy people's hospitality. And so he asked them, when I sent you out with nothing, did you lack anything? And they're like, nope, we didn't lack anything. In other words, at that point in Jesus' ministry, they could depend on people's hospitality to meet their needs. Generally, people were like, hey, Jesus is cool. We like Jesus. But notice verse 36, but now. Okay, that was then. You could expect people to, to appreciate you and support you and have you over for dinner. But now, he's like, everything is different now. The one who has a purse, the one who has the, the, the bag to carry your supplies in, the one who has no sword, says, get those supplies. On one level, he's saying, okay, that was a short-term missions trip, like you have the training wheels on, but now I'm sending you out on the real deal, take the training wheels off. I, I taught you to trust my provision, but now you need to think sort of long-term. On one level, he's doing that, but I think on another level, what he is saying is everything is about to change. At one point, you could enjoy people's hospitality. Now you can expect their hostility. You can no longer depend on the goodwill of the people of Israel to meet your needs. But now, and the reason I say that is verse 37. For explanation, here's, here's the ground for that. Here's why things are different. That that which is written must be accomplished in me, and he was reckoned among the transgressors. This is a quote from Isaiah 53. Jesus is saying all those predictions from Isaiah 53 that I'm going to be the lamb who's going to be offered, and they're going to treat me like a criminal. All of that is about to happen. If they treat the master like he is a criminal, they'll also treat his followers like a criminal. 
Jesus is saying, my death is signaling a massive shift. No longer will there be the big crowds adulating Jesus. Says, oh, he heals everyone. Now the crowds will be crying, crucify him. No longer will the disciples sort of be hailed as, oh, they're an in to get to Jesus. They'll now be sort of despised as companions of the crucified Nazarene. So when Jesus is talking about the sword and the, the money bag and the script, he's not talking so much as a literally go out and, and buy yourself a bigger wallet and go get yourself an AR-15. This is more in the terms of what they symbolize. You're going to face hostility. And so in verse 38, they totally missed the point. They say, here's two swords. And Jesus like, says, it is enough. He's not saying two swords are enough to go and accomplish my mission in the world. Like, there's been some crazy stuff done with political theory of, like, the two swords of the government and the church. Like, he's not thinking about that at all. What Jesus is sort of saying is, enough of such talk. You guys don't get it. We see later on in the garden that one of the disciples whips one of those two swords out and hacks the ear off the, off the high priest. And Jesus, I don't think he rolled his eyes because he's sinless, but you can almost be like a, no, 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 that's not what I meant, guys. The point here is not... Arm up so you can advance the gospel through the power of the sword. The point here is just as a sword, you, you carry a sword because times are dangerous. Times for those who believe in Jesus are about to be dangerous. The point here is don't expect it to be easy. How many Christians have shipwrecked their faith because they expected it to be easy? I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. My life's going to be so much better. I'll be happier, richer. My marriage will be stronger. And then that doesn't pan out. I, I'm done with this. Jesus is telling us, don't expect it to be easy. Yes, there are tremendous joys in the Christian life. There are great victories and enormous rewards and God's blessing. But don't expect it to be easy. The training wheels are coming off. The training wheels are coming off. Now, maybe you're experiencing that in your own life. I don't know that we can claim to face persecution like the early church did or like our brethren in Iran or North Korea or China. But you might be getting a lot of grief from a spouse for wanting to be in church this morning. Come on, why don't we go stay at home and go to, go to Cracker Barrel today? You may be re regarded as a suck-up to the boss at work for being the only one who wants to take integrity seriously. Everyone else, oh, come on, we all sort of cut the corners on this, but you're the one who says, no, for the sake of Jesus, we're going to do this right, and everyone sort of regards you as, oh, there's that guy again. Or perhaps you're pictured as a Puritan for not going to everyone else's parties. Where you're like, I'm not going to be part of the drinking, the carousing, all the things that go on. As a Christian, I can't be there. And they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. Or maybe commitment to truth has gotten you labeled as a Bible thumper or a homophobe or a misogynist because you say, this is what the Bible says. Jesus says, expect that hardship. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Peter would say, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange, some foreign thing happened to you. It should be no surprise that we face hostility with the one who was counted, reckoned among the transgressors. Now, why was he reckoned among the transgressors? Because you and I are transgressors. And he went to the cross for us who are lawbreakers. And he suffered in our place. He satisfied God's wrath. He was buried, and three days later, he rose again from the dead. That's why all of this is happening, is so you and I could be saved. And underlying all of this, think of the, the, these are like four walls on a building. There's this foundation underneath all of these promises and these warnings. It's that Jesus died for our souls, and we belong to him. 
What a farewell address. What a set of warnings for you and for me. And I don't know which one of these hits home the most. Maybe all of them. Maybe it's the betrayal. Run into the arms of the one who understands that and the one who is always faithful. Maybe it's the grasping after greatness. Look to the king who has promised you a share in his kingdom. Maybe it's Satan's testing, your faith being put to the test. Oh, look to the one who prays for you that your faith fail not. And look to the one who was counted among the transgressors for you. 